Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville, fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. I'm your host, Bob Salter. Co-hosting today is WFIU News Bureau Chief, Sarah Wittmeyer. And this week, we're talking about the opioid epidemic in a time of COVID. We have uh, four guests with us today. Three will be here during the first half of the program. Doug Hunsinger is Indiana's Executive Director for Drug Prevention, Treatment, and Enforcement. Tasha Cheatham is Minority Recovery Collective Incorporated's founder. And Chris Abert is the Indiana Recovery Alliance Executive Director. We'll also be joined in the second half of the program by Dr. Camilla Arnado from IU Health Bloomington. You can follow us uh, on Twitter at Noon Edition. You can send us questions there and you can also send us questions for the show and news at indianapublicmedia.org. So I want to bring in Chris, uh, Doug Hunsinger first. Uh, Doug, you talked with uh, Mitch Legan from our station not too long ago about this topic. Um, how have things changed since you and Mitch had a chance to talk? And, and I guess uh, more than that, you can kind of outline this whole issue for us. Well, thanks, Bob. And uh, I think when I, when I spoke to Mitch, uh, it was the summer and, um, you know, things over time um, have, um, you know, have gotten better. You know, I just want to remind your listeners quickly that, um, you know, when, when Governor Holcomb took office in 2017, you know, obviously he made combating the drug epidemic a top priority. And as we were headed into 2020, you know, we were making real progress. We had um, seen our drug um, overdose deaths uh, decrease at uh, uh, three times that of the national average. Um, you know, we had seen a decline in our opioid prescription rates, um, but COVID had really, really shifted that. And I think when I, um, when I last spoke um, to your listeners, we were, uh, we were announcing our naloxone um, program, and that, that was our uh, additional 25,000 uh, doses of naloxone, because our, our biggest concern at that point was really how are we going to keep people alive uh, so that we can, um, that when we are able to open back up and when our treatment facilities um, do begin to um, get back to full capacity, you know, how do we make sure that those people are, are still with us? So um, we're, we're really starting to see some, some real progress. This last year, we saw a 50% increase in our overdose, uh, uh, overdoses in our emergency departments. Uh, we saw a 67% increase. Uh, in 2019, or I'm sorry, in 2020, uh, with our uh, naloxone being administered by EMS. Um, but, you know, toward the end of the year, we, we, we saw those numbers come down from the summer. So, so that's some positive, um, po- you know, positive news. But, um, you, you know, it, it is still very difficult for people who are suffering from substance use disorder. All right. Thanks for framing that for us. Chris Abert from the Indiana Recovery Alliance. Um, Chris, can you just help us understand the, the connection between the pandemic and the, uh, the opioid abuse ep- epidemic? Sure. Yeah. And I think it's important to remember that it's not just overdose. So we're, we're facing a syndemic of overdose, HIV, hepatitis C, mass incarceration, homelessness, right? All of these things. Uh, work together in a negative way to exacerbate each other in ways they wouldn't on their own. Um, so then when you add um, COVID to that, it just exacerbates it. So I think that's the most important point is that this is an exacerbation. So we did see decreases in 2019, um, but over the last 20 years, that 2019 decrease was was the exception to the rule of, of increases in uh, fatal overdoses and overdoses in general. Um, so I don't think we'll understand the full impact of COVID uh, on this pandemic, 
until peer-reviewed research is done. Um, I, I, <clears throat> I'm leery to oversimplify uh, the impact of it because we know it's a very complicated problem. I will say um, that one of the reasons uh, that there have been an increase in overdoses, there's been this tendency to focus on prescription drug reform rather than reforming the failed drug war policies that actually fuel uh, the negative consequences that we see and, and the, the, you know, the system that people have to, uh, to navigate. So these are racialized drug policies that have been around for in, in full force for the past 50 years. And until we address that as the root problem, uh, we're going to continue to see, um, to not make very much progress. Okay, so Tasha Cheatham, your organization, Minority Recovery Collective, um, you founded it just a few years ago. Can you talk about what, what you do and the reason why your organization is important? Um, absolutely. So we go by Mercy, M-R-C-I, our acronym, repronounce it Mercy. Um, that was intentional simply because people of color specifically, but also those, all those who struggle with addiction, homelessness, mental health challenges are not often shown grace and mercy in this life. They are criminalized, um, dehumanized, etc. So we at Mercy um, believe in peer support um, and we, we believe in um, specializing and assisting Black, Indigenous, and people of color and minorities in recovery, um, in all things recovery at this point. We started out focusing on addiction and mental health and trauma as Doug knows. Hi, Doug. Um, <laughs> and so we've since grown and expanded thanks to um, connecting with people like Doug and, and other opportunities to now focus on all things recovery because um, like you said, it's a syndemic. So it is multiple things happening at the same time. You're not just experiencing addiction and relapse, but you're also experiencing mental health challenges in this time. A lot of people um, are experiencing homelessness or home insecurity for the first time, job insecurity, financial insecurity, all of these things that um, a lot of us take for granted in terms of our basic and most immediate needs being met. Um, and we at Mercy do our best to help those um, in recovery and who also happen to identify as BIPOC, if you will, or a minority um, to have a better all-around quality of life and to be able to sustain a healthy recovery journey. So, Doug, I wanted to, to uh, follow up on that. I, I know the, the AMA, I, I found this morning some recommend, recommendations from the AMA that urges governors and legislatures, particularly during this time, to, uh, to do some things, including flexibility for evaluating prescribing requirements uh, by allowing telemedicine, uh, supporting, um, support removing the prior authorization uh, and some other things that involve um, medications to treat opioid use disorder. Uh, it also talks about meaningful enforcement of mental health and substance use disorder parity laws. It says they're long overdue. And I think that speaks to what our other guests we're just talking about, removing existing barriers for patients with pain to obtain necessary medications in terms of dose, quantity, refill restrictions on controlled substances, and implementing and supporting harm reduction strategies, uh, especially including removing barriers to, to needle and syringe exchanges and service programs. So, you know, that, that's what the AMA has recommended for governors and legislatures. And I just uh, wondered what what the state's doing in any of those areas are, are those areas that you know you've been looking at and are working on legislation uh, that would address any of those. Yeah, absolutely. Parity, you know, starting off, parity is something that we have been working toward here in Indiana for um, for quite some time. It, it, it is um, uh, it, it's much more complicated than um, just flipping a switch, but uh, we continue to have those conversations. But one of the really great outgrowths of um, uh, or, or one of the um, positives that have come out of um, the pandemic is uh, is really this uh, this shift to telehealth. Um, now, now. You know, let me frame my comments with telehealth is is not this panacea that is going to uh, really um, be the end all be all for for everyone. But uh, when it comes to um, you know, our populations, whether it be urban or rural, uh, with issues with transportation and childcare, um, telehealth goes a long way to break down some of those barriers. And uh, we've we've seen through the use of telehealth. 
uh, our community mental health centers have seen um, an up, have seen a reduction in the amount of no-shows. Um, they have seen a, a, a better and more efficient utilization of their appointment times. Um, so there's a lot of benefits, but we know, you know, we, we've heard from many people around the state that um, telehealth for for those people suffering with substance use disorder is not the the um, is not the end all be all. Um, that connection is so important, and so we have to make sure that as we are are moving out of the pandemic and as we continue to um, work on legislation, you know, we we have a bill in the um, in currently in the Senate it's passed out of the House. Uh, to allow for telehealth, um, we have to make sure that uh, we're we're allowing people to make those choices to engage in person. And I'll also just touch on, you know, uh, the health, uh, pu- the public or the House Public Health Committee, you know, passed out our ten-year extension of our syringe service programs. Um, these programs are so important. Um, you know, they they not only do they ensure that um, that people have access to uh, to, to, um, uh, you know, uh, the recovery, um, the supports and, and to harm reduction. Um, but, but most importantly, it, our syringe service programs are a pathway into, um, treatment and, and they, they, they do amazing job at disease reduction. So, um, this 10 year extension uh, is, is a really important and it's, uh, it's on its way over to the Senate. Uh, as we move into the next, uh, the next portion of the uh, General Assembly session. So I'd like to ask you to expand on the idea of um, the substance use disorder parity and what you've been working on there. And then I'll turn it over to Chris, who I know I have some comments. So if you could do that, Doug. Yeah, absolutely. So those are, those are ongoing discussions with our um, uh, with our Division of Mental Health and Addiction, uh, Medicaid, and, um, it, you know, there are so, we have worked really hard to begin to connect a lot of our um, policies our, our, and, and to connect a lot of our treatment systems so that we're not just um, in the mental health space treating people's mental health, um, that we're also looking at how can we begin to address their, um, their physical health issues as well. And then likewise, we're, you know, we, we're working on policies that will make it easier for your primary care physician to, to help screen and, 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 and do those interventions uh, to where we can better ensure that we're, um, we're dealing with the whole person, regardless of, of which door you enter uh, into the treatment structure. All right, Chris. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to echo that um, increasing and um, maintaining the restrictions about telehealth, making sure that those, uh, the relaxing of those restrictions is, is continued is really important. Um, but I also wanted to talk about uh, opioid treatment programs in general. Methadone and buprenorphine are the gold standard for opioid use disorder. Um, so a couple other things that the state could do uh, immediately is to remove the limits on how many opioid treatment programs there can be. Uh, we know that this leads to, to cronyism pretty quickly, who has political clout is who's able to open those programs. There are also restrictions that if you're gonna open an opioid treatment program, you have to have a community health center or a hospital as a partner. Uh, this doesn't allow for um, a lot of people to come in and offer these services. Uh, and there are different, there are like buffer zone uh, restrictions on how many, say, methadone clinics you can have within a certain region. And, and again, this uh, limits the amount of competition and good services. But I also think that if the state had a statewide patient advisory council uh, that helped them make these decisions, that could perhaps be the most important thing. If you don't have impacted people sitting at the table when these policies are being discussed, you're not going to create programs that are actually accessible to the people you're trying to help. The last thing, super quickly, is uh, about the syringe service programs. We applaud uh, the efforts to have the sunset clause expanded to 2030. It's great. It's needed. But the truth of the matter is uh, Indian has the most convoluted law and difficult um, law of, of any other state in the country. And we need a whole new syringe service program law that we only have at any given time about 10 syringe service programs in the state out of the 92 counties. Uh, and that's because of uh, the way it was set up initially under a different administration. So we need a reform of that law to expand uh, those services. 
Chris, can you elaborate on that a little bit more and talk when you say convoluted, difficult, can you explain what a county has to do in order to set up a syringe exchange program? Sure, it's changed over the years, uh, but, but right now you have to declare a hepatitis C or an HIV emergency, have the, the health commissioner declare that. Uh, and then you have to go to your city council, I'm sorry, your county council and have them vote on county commissioners, uh, have them vote on whether or not a syringe service program is an appropriate response to that HIV or hepatitis C. So what that does in effect is leave uh, public health and people who use drugs health uh, up, to, uh, up to a vote, right? Uh, we know from criminalization and stigma uh, that the general public is not friendly towards people who use drugs. So to leave their health in the hands um, of, of, of elected officials who have to answer them is not good public health policy. So we have examples like in North Carolina um, where they just passed the law at the state level uh, and then nonprofits, as long as they worked in conjunction with health departments, were able to open up. And they had scores of SSPs open up across the state almost immediately, where again, we, we still have uh, at any given time about 10, and it's incredibly difficult to navigate uh, the system every two years having to have that reapproved. So I guess in, in general, we don't want to put people's health up for popular vote especially when that population has been historically disadvantaged and stigmatized. All right, we're talking about the opioid uh, epidemic, actually the syndemic uh, of several different things coming together in a time of COVID. And we are, um, if we're taking our, your questions by uh, sending us an email to news at indianapublicmedia.org, or you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. Tasha, I wanted to follow up with you, and you know, you certainly can comment on anything that you've heard so far. But I also wanted you to expand on the way underrepresented groups have been affected by the pandemic, and uh, and more about the the need and, and what your organization does. Absolutely. Um, and, and excuse me, bear with me for a moment. I am recovering. I just want that to be said here. Um, I was just barely a week ago, spent six days in the hospital recovering from COVID, pneumonia, and acute liver failure. So I am on the mend. So if I seem to be paused a little length, I may just be catching my breath or kind of getting adjusted and comfortable. So um, just wanted to give that note. But I've just been listening. Um, and so far, um, Bob has, uh, you have had some great points just about um, honestly holding people accountable for what's happened in the community in terms of harm reduction and doing better, being better, um, instead of just providing the bare minimum or just treating the symptom or the behavior and really getting to the root cause of these issues. I believe that mercy is imperative um, in this arena, um, not only to give voice to black and brown um, stories in terms of the opioid epidemic, which we are often left out of. Um, you know, we were criminalized and dehumanized and everything in between with the war on drugs um, and the crack epidemic of the 80s, um, ignored with the heroin epidemic before then, um, and then ignored once again with the opioid epidemic after. Um, crack cocaine and all of that good stuff. So we are about advocacy for self, advocacy for our community um, in terms of honestly recognizing the, the role and impact of the government intervening um, and doing things um, to, you know, honestly perpetuate the war on drugs um, and put the drugs in the communities of color in the first place. But that's a real thing and a real place where we need to start. That is honestly hopped over a lot of the time. We can't continue to um, just glaze over the fact that it happened. We can't continue to ignore it. If we're going to make real progress and real change in the community and really see people get help, that has to be acknowledged. That's kind of all that I have to say. It's honestly been a great conversation. I'm just happy to be here. Uh, <laughs> but um, that, that's really all that I have. And like I said, Mercy is about advocacy, helping people to better advocate for themselves in terms of their care, in terms of their recovery. Um, and all of those things, but also advocating for the community so that we can see better access um, to care, better safe syringe programs and other harm reduction programs. Honestly, more options um, for opioid treatment that include lean 
um, there, that's often not talked about or focused on, but it is heavy within the rap community um, and communities of color and amongst young people because of rap music and its influence. So there are more things going on um, in this opioid epidemic among this syndemic of other things. Um, that need to be focused on. And I believe that we are help uh, to stand in the gap in a sense um, and making sure that, you know, pretty much the underdog and those underlying needs are being met as well. How do people get get in touch with you if they want to talk more about your services? Absolutely. So um, to get more information about our services, to learn more about our organization, we're going into year three, um, year two, we just got our year one, we got our name out there, year two, um, we really started to connect and to provide services and do a lot of community based research. Again, Doug helped us um, along with DMHA last year to do the state of our recovery series, which we will be bringing back on our own merit this year, but would love to have Doug and DMHA a part of it again, if they would like to be. Um, but following up from last year and really helping communities of color, people of color to understand what recovery is, what it looks like for us, because it is a little bit different given systemic and chronic trauma and stress and all of the good stuff that, and bad stuff that black indigenous people of color and minorities face um, in this construct. So to get in contact with Mercy, you can literally find us everywhere. You can put an at in front of it or a .org behind it, but it is W-E-A-R-E-M-R-C-I. So we are Mercy. Um, you can find us on social media. Again, put a .org behind it. That is our website. Um, you can um, email me, contact me directly, um, and I can put my information in the chat. I'll also say it here. Um, but yeah, it, it's not hard to get in contact with us at all if you want to find out more info. Um, right now, we are offering peer support services. We are a peer-led recovery community organization, so we are completely grassroots. Um, we are ran by, including myself, people who self-identify as being in recovery themselves um, from whatever they are in recovery from, but it usually is addiction or mental health related or trauma related. Um, we provide telehealth services, so we provide one-on-one -on -one coaching, we host support groups, and we're starting to expand our services to include some other things, because we do believe that the opposite of addiction is not, excuse me, <clears throat> is not sobriety, but human connection. That's one of my favorite quotes, and this pandemic has definitely proven that. People have relapsed hard, we've had the increases in overdoses and all of those things, because that human connection piece and recovery is so imperative. So we are working um, hopefully, fingers crossed, to have a campus um, to be able to have people connect with us and our services more directly in the very near future. But for right now, we are completely telehealth. All right. Thanks for being here with us, Tasha. And we, Absolutely. Uh, Thanks for having we, me. Yeah, we hope you have a, a, a very good recovery here from your COVID experience. Um, Thank you. Just, you. You had uh, some comments to make. Yeah, I just wanted to amplify uh, what was said. This problem really is about racialized drug policy. So when we talk about increasing access through telehealth and, and removing, uh, making treatment low threshold and high tolerance, we're talking about moving away from a criminalized uh, mindset. We're talking, so when methadone clinics originally started, it was under the Nixon administration and it was part of criminal justice, uh, specifically to control communities of color uh, and the black power movement, as well as the anti-war left at the time. This isn't conspiracy theory, it's very well documented. So again, I just want to reiterate, if we don't address the root cause of our problems, right, which is racialized drug policies, going all the way back to Chinese exclusion laws, uh, we're not going to make any progress. And, and this is very important to keep that at the forefront of all of our discussions. Um, I guess the, in, in short, another way of saying is for 40, 50 years, we put almost a trillion dollars into a failed drug war. Let's just set that down for a little while and try something else. And the something else is compassionate evidence-based responses. Uh, Doug, I'd like for you to, to react to that because it's, you know, your uh, job, you're the executive director for drug prevention, treatment and enforcement. So, um, yeah, some reaction. Yeah, so I'll, I'll start with our uh, opioid treatment programs or our, our, our statewide uh, network of methadone clinics. Um, you know, our, our goal of, uh, of our administration has been to put one of those um, 
facilities within an hour's drive of every individual. Um, and, and we and, and we absolutely uh, would like to um, have that closer. Um, and we understand, you know, we've, we've worked hard to place those in, in our urban and rural areas. Um, but uh, um, we are legislatively um, bound by the, the number of um, programs that we've had, we, we can have. Uh, we've done a lot of work to improve access to those, um, but, uh, but it is a continuing um, conversation with our uh, legislature. You know, I think if you look at our work over the last four years, um, we have put a lot of effort into, um, into um, trying to do things differently looking at the uh, way things have done been done in the past and and really um, trying to think about um, again addressing those those root causes looking at the social determinants of health and um, how we can begin to um, to, to fix um, to fix the larger issues that are going on in our communities you know um, I, I got a chance to meet Natasha um, Oh, probably uh, December of, um, I think, uh, two years ago. But um, she engaged some focus groups for us uh, this fall, uh, or I'm sorry, this spring and during the middle of, um, of COVID. And they were really helpful in, um, in, in giving, especially giving me a baseline um, for, for how, the commu- how, how some of our um, communities um, feel uh, about, about the government's response, about the different policies. And so um, just having that baseline understanding um, and then some of the recommendations that, um, that came from her work um, have really been a foundation for, uh, for moving forward. And especially, you know, during COVID, um, we've put a lot of focus into uh, recovery. Um, you know, we, we, prior to COVID, we had um, put a lot of work into our treatment infrastructure to ensure that regardless of uh, what someone's substance of choice was, um, that, that uh, we had an infrastructure there um, to, to treat them. And so COVID has really shown us how important it is that we um, ensure that as people move from treatment and into recovery, that we're supporting them. And so I, I just can't say enough about the work that Mercy is doing, um, and, and now not just within their community, but um, they have joined our, our network of recovery hubs, um, which are doing work statewide, and to have that um, that voice at the table, um, you know, representing our, our BIPOC community is, is so important. So, um, again, I, I, I want to, want to thank her for her work and, um, and then we've got a long way to go. Um, but, uh, but again, our, our real, um, our real effort has been in, in building local coalitions to, to solve pro- problems uh, locally and, and to, to begin to think about how we can do things differently. Doug, I want to ask you a quick follow-up to that. It's just, you know, any time we've been talking about public health or anything to do with health, it seems like for the last year, it has been about COVID. Um, do you do you feel like all the attention that's been paid to COVID over the past year has sort of detracted from this ongoing um, drug crisis we have and the efforts that were being made in state? Well, I don't know that the the attention is is what has uh, really detracted. I mean, obviously, um, you know, connection is one of the main tenets of uh, of, of recovery, and so um, what we ask people to do, um, you know, to be socially distant, to to, to work from home, uh, we you know we were encouraging disconnection, and so I think it's really in how we have been successful in. Um, Combating um, COVID nineteen has really been what is um, driving some of that isolation and um, and and exacerbating people who you know who maybe they were in recovery or or, or maybe they were um, you know they were they were functioning uh, you know with their with their disease but um, but COVID has really exacerbated um, those issues and whether it's stress of a job or, or even just the anxiety of um, you know having that uncertainty um, I, so I, I you know attention or not I think it's really um, 
it's really important that as we move forward that we remember that um, in order to um, provide those um, uh, you know our services we, we, we have to be able to, to to make those warm handoffs we have to be able to see our um, our patients and and our peers um, in recovery face to face I want to bring a new voice into our conversation dr. Camilla our Arnado has joined us from IU Health Bloomington. She's the medical director of addiction treatment and recovery center for IU Health Bloomington. Um, thanks for being here. I just wanted to ask you sort of in a general sense, how, how has the last year been for you? How, are thing, how, how have things changed on the ground in your observations? Um, hello, thank you. Um, I would sort of echo what all the other excellent um, panelists have been saying about connection, you know, being so important. Um, we have, our program is a small um, intensive outpatient program located on the sort of, on the same campus as the Bloomington Hospital. And especially, you know, when the quarantines and things went into place of social distancing, we had been trying to provide services um, through telemedicine, which is what, you know, what the general behavioral health outpatient services we're doing that we are attached to. And very quickly, we realized that that really wasn't the best option for our, our um, participants, our um, patients. And so we actually were one of the first uh, groups to go back to providing in person. We're still providing a telemedicine kind of option for patients that um, are either too ill, you know, or have too many risk factors or just really are not comfortable attending in person. But we've had most of our folks want to come back uh, in person. And um, and so that we've noticed this, this need and we've tried to respond to it for people to be in the room together uh, as opposed to, you know, participating from, from more isolated locations. I should mention Dr. Arnato is a psychiatrist, so you have uh, a lot of experience in the mental health arena, obviously. Yes. And you know, we talked earlier in the show about how a lot of these things go together. So how how has um, you know the the pandemic just exacerbated the problems of mental health? Yeah, I mean, it's I our you know our program uh, is is sort of what we call dual diagnosis. So our folks tend to have both both uh, some substance-related disorder as well as another psychiatric, like a depression, anxiety diagnosis, PTSD, something of that sort. Um, I mean, I think it's been, it's been really interesting to see how people with different disorders have fared. And, um, and for some people, initially, they actually, uh, you know, with a lot of agoraphobia or social anxiety, they were feeling like, this is kind of great because now I don't have to go out. You know, services are coming to me. I'm kind of liking this, but after a few months, they kind of realized like, oh, this isn't actually very good for me because it's increasing my fear to go out, both because of the contamination idea that's out there, but also because I've kind of really um, succumbed to my own um, fears kind of. So that was a, that was an interesting um, thing that I noticed. Um, the other thing is in a way, this has kind of provided us an opportunity to, to reach people in their homes and um, kind of be able to take care of people in some further counties that have transportation problems. Um, I work in a lot with um, women who are pregnant and postpartum, and that's been a group that's always been hard to reach because, you know, they have so many responsibilities and children, et cetera. And this has allowed us to go to them, you know, with our virtual services, which kind of has provided an opportunity um, to, to do that. Um, but again, for the folks that are dealing with the more substance related things, unfortunately, when, when they became more isolated with less oversight and less connection, they felt like, you know, well, no one's going to know if I just use a little bit, I think I can use just a little bit and I'm bored and I don't have everything, all my services, I'm just going to use a little bit. And unfortunately for many people that led to, to big relapses, you know, fortunately folks that were already connected with services were able to, to tell us that that was happening and we could, we, we brought them back in person. So doctor, it, it, that, it sounds like um, isolation is one factor that can leave someone vulnerable to 
addiction or relapse? Are there other factors? Um, well, I think some of the things that Natasha was speaking to, um, like the, the disequal effect of this pandemic has, you know, certainly been one of the factors that has affected people differently. Um, for things like such, such as if you're providing things via telemedicine, but people don't have access to reliable internet or their phones, you know, are out of date or don't, can't load the correct programs. Um, it's leaving them really vulnerable and not able to access what, what is around, what is available for people experiencing homelessness, for example. You know, they can't quarantine, they can't self-isolate, they also can't really, where, where are they going to go for privacy to actually engage in telemedicine? Um, there are, there have been some solutions that people have come up with, but it's a very different world, you know, so I think for those of us that have white collar jobs and we're at home, you know, cozy, you know, logging in and seeing and, and doing our work, it's very different than for the folks that are out there kind of, you know, potentially freezing to death and, you know, just trying to attend a telemedicine, trying to find a place that they could even attend such a meeting. Um, you know, that's, I think, an area, I don't know if that's answering your question, but that's an area in which we have to consider uh, how are people going to access these these the services to to decrease the vulnerability to starting to use again or to continuing to use substances. Your answer was better than my question. Thank you very much for that. Uh, if you have any questions, our listeners, you can send them to us at news at indianapublicmedia.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. Uh, Chris, I wanted to ask you about this. I, I read this this morning in a, a Journal of the American Medical Association article that talked about um, a, a vaccine for fentanyl that's under, um, I guess it's it's trying to be developed and how that's really taken a backseat to all the energy and funding that's gone toward COVID-19 vaccines. And I think a lot of people would under understand that, but do you know anything about this issue of a fentanyl vaccine? You know, I'm not super well-versed with this doctor that's trying to develop this vaccine. Um, I will say that people that I trust within the medical field and within peer-reviewed research circles uh, think that this is an outlier, that it is not important work, uh, and that it is self-serving for the person who's pushing it. Um, That being said, Uh, I I think it is important to talk about fentanyl. Uh, That is one of the reasons that we're seeing these increases um, in in fatal overdoses. So as we pushed back on prescription um, drugs, people turned to to heroin. uh, And as heroin has become less available, uh, fentanyl has taken its place. So the the majority, what we're seeing is uh, people moving over to what are known as fake blues or Mexican uh, perks or perk 30s and actually moving away from heroin altogether and seeking out fentanyl. Um, Fentanyl for viewers that don't know uh, is, uh, you know, uh, the hospital pharmaceutical version is actually a very safe drug uh, that can be administered and monitored. However, there are analogs such as carfentanil and acrofentanil that we don't really have research about what happens when humans ingest them. Um, but we do know that they are, you know, thousands of times, sometimes more powerful um, than opioids such as uh, heroin and morphine. Um, so, so that that is absolutely pushing. Uh, what we don't want to do is get into some type of media hysteria or moral panic that there is this new and crazy drug. So, what tends to happen is then legislators will make fentanyl-specific uh, legislation to punish people. Uh, who are dealing fentanyl even higher, right? Again, that's a reversion to these failed war on drugs policies. Uh, What we need to do is get more naloxone out into the communities and into the hands of people who use the drugs. Um, Again, there's not research on it uh, because you can't do fentanyl research on human beings, the acrofentanyl and carfentanil. Um, But we know that, that the that the naloxone works. Uh, and really what we need is a safe drug supply. So to push it uh, even further, uh, what other Western co- Western countries have done is, is use heroin-assisted treatment, right? Is made sure, Canada recently made sure uh, that there was a safe supply. So, so the problem 
again, this isn't really the fentanyl or that we need a fentanyl vaccine. The problem is the criminalization of the drugs themselves. It pushes it into the black market where they're poisoned. I think it would be actually more fair to talk about this is a poisoning epidemic more than an overdose epidemic uh, because the drug supply is adulterated as a result of criminalization. So all we can do right now um, outside of uh, criminal justice reform vast criminal justice reform like what we're seeing in Oregon and what's being proposed in, uh, I believe, Vermont and Washington. Um, all we can do now is try to get as much naloxone out and keep people as connected as possible as they navigate um, an incredibly dangerous situation brought about by the last 50 years of, of policies uh, introduced by our government talking about getting naloxone out. We mentioned earlier in the program about nalox boxes. And Doug, we got a question from a listener wanting to know how they can get a nalox box. And also they had a, a follow-up to that, which I'll go ahead and ask you now too, but it says, will this be like having a defibrillator? Well, absolutely. So um, just last month, we made our announcement um, at the... Uh, Indiana Commission to Combat Drug Abuse um, Commission meeting where we, um, you know, we, we announced that we our goal was to put at least uh, two of these Nalox boxes in every county uh, in Indiana. And um, so they are, um, this is a partnership that we have with Overdose Lifeline. Um, I, I believe their, their website is overdoselifeline.org. Uh, and they can reach out to, um, to Justin Phillips, who's the executive director of that organization. Um, and she's coordinating um, the, the, these boxes. I, I would love to see um, every, uh, you know, every defibrillator in the state have, um, have a naloxone box right, right next to it. Um, Chris is absolutely right. Naloxone um, is the easiest thing we can do to ensure uh, that people um, that people stay alive, and that um, and that, that then we can help them find the treatment that they need. So naloxone is the easiest and most important thing we can do. All right. If you have a question, send it in to news at indianapublicmedia.org. You can also follow us on Twitter and send us questions there at noon edition. Um, we have a question that uh, I, I think would go to, to Tasha, certainly would go to Tasha, about what are ways that hospitals, health organizations, health departments, et cetera, can better support people of color who have substance abuse disorder? I love this type of question. The reason being, like I said, we are heavy about self-advocacy and especially in our care and our recovery. The biggest things that providers can do, no matter where they are providing services from, is actually listen to them. You cannot continue to not listen to the person in front of you and tell them about what they are feeling or tell them about what they are experiencing. You have to listen to them as an individual, as an individual of color, because all of our experiences are unique to us in those realms. Um, and so the biggest thing, like I said, to support them is to listen to them, to listen to us. The other thing is you can't force treatment Treatment isn't always the first thing, um, the first step. I know we want it to be, but it isn't always. You have to, the person has to want the treatment. The person honestly needs to understand what the treatment is and how it's going. I think we just, uh, we just lost Tasha. So I want, uh, Camilla, if you could uh, just react to that, you know, as a, a yeah. healthcare provider. Yeah, I mean, I want to just sort of piggyback or maybe like, first of all, completely agree with what Tasha is saying, like really the treatment, we're here to sort of be more like coaches, you know, and support like that mentality more than telling people, you must do this, you must do that. There is some of that, of course, when you're prescribing a medicine, you have to talk about the safety and you have to be cognizant of that, but really it has to start with meeting uh, folks where they're at and trying to um, help them to figure out what their next step is that they can commit to. And just to sort of agree with what Chris was saying earlier, part, part of the problem that we've gotten into is so much of our treatment is coercive. And so many of the things that we have do require external control, you know, to function. And so when the, when that went away, because people were so isolated, that is, you know, part of the problem we got ourselves into because of having a solution that required all these outside entities. 
to be doing so much oversight on people. Um, and, and again, I, I really like what Tasha was saying before she got cut off. It's ask them what they need. Maybe it isn't treatment right away. Maybe it's housing, food, you know, childcare, figure those things out so that they can actually be successful in treatment. Don't set people up for failure by putting them into a treatment setting that is not well matched to their needs. Wanted to ask Doug uh, if there are other pieces of legislation going through the state house, other strategies that you know we haven't touched on yet that you would like to talk about. Yeah. So uh, real quickly, I'll just add to um, uh, one of the things I learned from the uh, the work that we did with Natasha uh, about a year ago was um, having a workforce that is reflective of the individuals that they're treating, um, and and that's. That, that to me was so important because it's, I think it's something that all of us sort of look for in our providers. Um, and, and that was, a, that was a, a, a huge light bulb that I think a lot of people take for granted. So um, that's just another thing that uh, I think that's, that's an area where the state can really do um, a lot of work to, to help our providers um, grow and diversify their workforce. Um, you know, there, there's, uh, there are a, a number of, um, of, of bills that are moving their way through the, um, the legislature. And um, over the last you know, four years, we have done a lot of work to um, try to remove barriers, to um, increase access to, to treatment and, um, and help people maintain their recovery. But um, you know, we've been doing, um, I, or I've been spending a lot of time um, in the criminal justice um, space. And so um, some of the things that um, you know, we're working on with um, helping locals create, uh, you know, a local justice reinvestment advisory councils, um, ensuring that um, community stakeholders are getting together, uh, talking through um, issues uh, that are impacting, um, whether that be the, the court's docket or, um, or, or, or looking at their community as a whole and trying to figure out ways in which they can um, create solutions through diversion programs and um, and ensuring that treatment providers are involved in these conversations. I mean, these are these are things that we have been doing at the state level for um, for quite a while now. But um, it's really important that that work take place at a local level, um, because, you know, again, there is only so much you can do by um, creating the right um, you know ecosystem in the state you have to really um, have the, that work being done at the local level as well so uh, those are just uh, that with our and again our syringe service program that 10-year extension I just can't um, I can't impress upon how important that is um, just for the ability to continue the work that we're already doing um, which will which will allow us to um, to hopefully move those uh, programs forward in the future. Chris has a comment, and then I think Sarah has a question. Yeah, I just want to uh, agree uh, with with Doug that we do need community-led um, solutions to this. Um, unfortunately, a lot of those are not being led by impacted people, so I would add to that, uh, that we need community-led solutions, uh, but we need the stakeholders to primarily be people who are impacted who are going to have to navigate those services. Um, and, and to call for a statewide patient advisory uh, council uh, so that we can have our voices heard about exactly uh, what it is that we need. Yeah, you mentioned that before, and I just wanted to get a little bit more uh, of a clear vision of what, you're, what you'd like to see. Well, so when you look at this as a public health issue and as a, as a, as a human rights issue, actually, right, um, then we know that anytime there's been a movement um, regarding vulnerable populations, its success is always directly proportional to if it was being led by those that were impacted. So, you know, the, the ACT UP with the HIV crisis, um, Black Panthers and Martin Luther King with the civil rights crisis, all, all of these, we have mental health reform. The reason we moved away from um, these giant uh, um, mental health, uh, what, what, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Jeez. Um, Sorry. Hospitals? Yes. <laughs> Insane asylums is what they were called. Um, that was all done by people who were impacted. So oftentimes people who use drugs are uh, infantilized and treated very paternalistically as though they can't make their own decisions. We need people who are using drugs sitting at the table uh, involved in these policies. And if we don't have that, we're not going to create programs that are 
uh, as was already mentioned by almost everybody, um, that are actually meeting the stated needs of those folks. Sarah? Chris, I was just, I wanted to give you a chance to comment on naloxone because I know, you know, I think it was in Bedford where you testified at a commissioner's meeting, but I feel like some of that debate about um, why we should not have naloxone readily available is certainly going to resurface now that we're talking about these nalox boxes. So I was wondering um, if you could just give your elevator pitches to the benefits of nalox boxes and naloxone. Well, first and foremost, for those who care about human life, um, it is the most, it's the antidote to overdose, uh, and it's the most effective uh, way that we can respond right now outside of mass systems changes. Um, if you're looking at it purely from an economic point, so the Indiana Recovery Alliance has, uh, we're almost to 100,000 doses distributed. Um, and in those 100,000 doses, we've had just over 5,000 people report back to us. Uh, that they used it effectively so that a fatal overdose was averted. Um, so that's 5,000 instances of community response uh, where an overdose uh, and possibly a, a fatal overdose uh, was averted. So again, if you look past the idea that this is someone's life, that they had you know, a to-do list on their calendar and they were able to show up for their family and engage, uh, if, if that doesn't interest you, just the cost that we've saved that's 5,000 people that very likely didn't enter into the hospital system. Uh, and, and I don't know exactly what the cost is for each uh, ambulance drive and, and seeing somebody at the ER, uh, but that's a, a huge amount of savings. So what we need uh, is hospital foundations and the state to make money available so that we can continue to distribute this naloxone. So nalox boxes are a great idea. We applaud that. Uh, we think we need more. We need really drastic change uh, right now. Um, so we need to make sure it is in every defibrillator, in every AED. Uh, we need to make sure that when the state is deciding who, how they're going to distribute um, state opioid response money for naloxone, um, that all organizations are at the table. For example, we give out a different type of naloxone that was not included in the request for proposals. Uh, so we just, we couldn't even apply for it to give out our much cheaper naloxone at a statewide level. So again, this is why it's important to have impacted people sitting at the table at the policy level. We are uh, out of time. Doug, or Chris, has, or Chris has taken us to the uh, end of our show. I want to thank all of our guests today. You are all fabulous. Chris Abert, a- um, Dr. Camilla Arnado. Tasha Cheatham and Doug Hunsinger. Thank you all for being here today. It was a very informative show. For co-host Sarah Whitmire, producer Benta Boutier, and engineer John Bailey, I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening to Noon Edition. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU Public Radio. A podcast of this program is available at WFIU.org slash Noon Edition. Production support comes from Smithville, fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org.